Father, we always love hearing from you through your word, but today your word brings us right to the magnificent person of your dear son, Jesus Christ. It brings us to what it means to be a church of Jesus Christ and what Christ's church means to Christ. Thank you. Teach us today that we may honor you in our hearts, our lives, our lips, and our choices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's hard for me to say what is the center of the Gospel of Matthew. I've taught you in the past that structurally, chapter 13 is the center. In chapter 13, uh, the Jewish leaders have just committed the sin, the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has declared that that generation is forsaken of the Spirit of God. And in chapter 13, he turns to parables, teaching in parables for the first time predominantly, and speaking of the mysteries of this phase of God's kingdom program. Structurally, that's the center of the Gospel of Matthew. But my feeling is that this is the theological or the doctrinal center right where we are right now in this section, because this section speaks to the what now? What is God going to do going forward? Jesus has reached out to the nation of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the children, and that generation has rejected him. So what is God going to do now? This section answers that question very uh, powerfully, very poignantly, very pointedly. So we're going to see that today. It's full of meaning. It's full of controversy. We're going to slow down and look at it bit by bit beginning with a probing dialogue in verses 13 through 15, number one in your outline, a probing dialogue. And when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he began to ask his disciples, saying, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some on the one hand say, John the Immerser, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? And that's where we'll pause right now. First thing that Matthew brings us to is a relocation in verse 13. And when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he's turned away from these religious leaders that he's had a clash with, against whose leaven, whose doctrine he's just warned the disciples That's fresh in our minds as readers of this gospel. That's worth keeping in mind. The fact that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is leavened to be avoided. Just kind of have that in your mind. So turning away from that, Jesus comes into the parts of Caesarea Philippi. Well, where's that? There's actually two Caesareas that can be very confusing in reading the book of Acts. But there are two Caesareas. One of them is along the coast, and that's not this one. This one is about 25 miles north. If you can picture the Sea of Galilee and go about 25 miles more or less due north near Mount Hermon, you've got this Caesarea. It's called Caesarea Philippi to distinguish it from the other Caesarea. Uh, when it was founded, it had, it's gone through several other names. It was in, initially called Panion after the false god Pan, who was supposed to have been born or worshipped in a cave near there from which a stream flows. So it was early called Panion, but it was taken by Herod, and uh, Herod built a temple for Caesar Augustus there, a temple for Caesar Augustus. So it was initially named after a Greek god, and now it's named after Caesar, who was worshipped as a god. A temple was built there for that Caesar. Uh, This Herod's son, Philip, 
renamed Caesarea after Tiberius Caesar. So that's why it's Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea because he named it that. Philippi because it was Philip's Caesarea, not Philip's, but belonging to Philip. And so this is that district that Jesus has gone into. Now, don't miss that. It's, Matthew doesn't say anything just for because he's got a word count to meet. Uh, if there's words there, we should look at them and think about them. What's he saying here? Where is Jesus? Jesus is in a Gentile area where pagan gods are worshipped that, in fact, is, itself is named after the pagan worship of a pagan emperor. That's where Jesus is. He's not in Jerusalem. The, the capital of Israel. He's not in Nazareth, where he just uh, ministered for years. He's up in this Gentile area. And what happens in this Gentile area, if you've read ahead, and I hope you have? He's confessed, confessed as Christ, the Son of the living God, and the church is announced. Not at Jerusalem, the capital. Not in Nazareth, where he just spent years teaching and ministering. But off in this Gentile pagan area. Huh that kind of suggestive? Does that maybe point to things to come? Especially if you remember the rumbles we've read through the gospel, this Gentile centurion who was a model of faith in chapter 8, and this uh, Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite, who is a model of faith in chapter 15, whereas the children, the Jews, are slapping their bread off the table and refusing to eat it. Interesting note. Let's keep it in mind as we go on. That's his relocation. And now we have a conversation in uh, verses 13b through 15. Let's talk first about Jesus and his questions. Have you noticed that Jesus asks a lot of questions? I ask. I counted about 19 questions in the Gospel of Matthew so far. And there are plenty to come. Have you noticed that? He asks a lot of questions. Why does he ask a lot of questions, I ask? The same reason I do, to engage people, to involve people, but he also does it to reveal what's in people's hearts. Some of you have heard me say this. There seem to be two kinds of people in the world predominantly. There's tellers and there's askers. There are people who just like to tell you what they think, and you're supposed to listen, and that's fine. Uh, I could use a little more of that myself, but there are people who are also askers. They're inveterate askers. It's natural to them to ask questions and draw out the person they're talking to. A teller can walk away from a conversation having learned nothing about the person he's talking to. Shouldn't be the case with an asker. Not everybody likes askers. Not everybody likes to be questioned. Why? Because it brings you out. It exposes you. There's, there's no way to just shrug off an asker, at least not honestly. And this is what Jesus does. He asks questions. He does this to probe people, to reveal what's in their hearts. He does it to make them think. He does it to confront them with the truth, too, and to bring them to a commitment. That's also the reason I use them, and that's the reason politicians avoid them. Have you noticed that a politician will never sit down for an interview with an interviewer who might actually ask them hard questions? They sit down with people who are going to ask them questions like, why is your opponent so evil? And, uh, <laughs> and what's your favorite program so far? And stuff like that. What kind of ice cream do you like? If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? And questions like that. Not generally, at least, people who share the, the viewpoint of the interviewer. Not hard questions, not challenging questions. Politicians stay far away from people like that. They're never in a room where they might be asked 
those kinds of questions. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, when I was a very young man, my pastor gave me an opportunity to preach at a union rescue mission. You know what a rescue mission is. This was in downtown Los Angeles. I was in my 20s. I'd preached very little at that time. And so he gave me some advice as he'd preached there many times. And one of the things, I guess knowing me, one of the things he warned me against is don't ask questions because they don't understand rhetorical questions. If you ask a question, they're going to answer it. And I've seen it happen that one will give one answer, another will give another, and a fight will break out. So if you ask questions, a fight might break out. Well, have you met me? This, terif this terrified me. <laughs> I knew I could not do that. So when I have a, a very uh, a, a tense situation, I'll often, I don't normally practice my sermons, but this one I practiced. And as I practiced, I would hear myself preaching, and I would start to say, so why does this? I'd say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You don't want a fight to break out. Don't ask questions. And I'd get back on my groove, and I'd say, and so... You wonder, why is this? And no, 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 don't do that. Fight will break out. You don't want bloodshed while you're preaching, normally. So the night comes and I'm preaching and everything's going just fine. I mean, there's no injuries. And I'm preaching Christ. And I get to this point where my internal monitor hears coming out of my mouth the words, and why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hear these words begin to come out and I make a real quick course change. And so the way I say it is, and why did Jesus cry out to God? I'll tell you why he cried out to God. And there was no violence. So Jesus is an inveterate question asker because he, it brings people out. There's a book called Questioning Evangelism. And it doesn't actually question evangelism. It suggests that we should evangelize like Jesus did. Jesus didn't just tell. He asked questions, and then he brought the gospel and the truth of God in. So that's Jesus and his questions. Now let's talk about Jesus and these questions, number two. The there's two rounds of them. First round is in verses 13a and 14. He began to ask his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some on the one hand, say John the Immerser, and others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So notice this. This will actually be very important, though it can't seem it at first glance. He doesn't ask them what men think about him or how they feel about him. What does he ask them? What do they say about him? Notice the words for say and speak and ask questions happen a lot of times in this section. He wants to know what men are saying. Remember, Jesus has put a lot of stock on what people say. He says, what you say comes out of your heart. Remember that? He says that in chapter 15. He says that we will be judged for every idle word we say. So he's asking what people say about him. What do they say, the Son of Man? And why does he say Son of Man every time he says that? He's Referring back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel sees in vision one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He's just seen all these kingdoms of man coming up out of the ocean and like animals, but the kingdom of God comes in a son of man on the clouds of heaven. He's a son of man, so he's human, but he's on divine clouds, so he's divine. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Who do men say that? He doesn't say I, but he says the son of man. That's how he refers to himself. That's his favorite way of referring to himself. Who do men say the Son of Man is? 
And their answer is interesting, isn't it? They say John the Immerser, Elijah, Jeremiah are one of the prophets. Well, all of these have in common that they're prophets. And they're, they all have in common that they're all great men. We saw Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist, but driven by his guilty conscience to see that. Um, Elijah, you remember, didn't actually die. He was taken to heavy, uh, heaven in a, in a chariot, in a whirlwind. And he was prophesied to come back to herald the Messiah. So, so he, he's Elijah, the herald of the Messiah. John the Baptist, the herald of the Messiah. Or Jeremiah, who preached about the Messiah. Jeremiah is an interesting choice. He's in Matthew's gospel several times. In the opening chapter, he's quoted about Rachel uh, weeping in Ramah. He's quoted at the end of the gospel about the pieces of silver thrown down in the, in the temple. He's the weeping prophet who prophesied of the Messiah. So, them or one of the prophets. Now, it's a striking thing and worth noting before we move on that, well, are these all right answers or wrong answers? Be brave, answer me. They're all wrong answers. I never make fun of your answers. So they're all wrong even, even if they're not correct. I try to ask questions only that I'm sure you'll answer correctly. Um, the, they're, they're all great men. They're all good men. But they're all wrong. Now, but, but, but they're prophets. It's a remarkable thing that it's actually an insult to Christ to say that he's any of these great men. I mean, it would be great to be compared to any of those men. Any of us would be very pleased to be compared to one of these men. But the, it, it beggars Christ by, by contrast. It doesn't rise to who he is or what he's done. Uh, he's not just a prophet, even a great prophet. But all of these fall short. Praising, I'm sure all these people would think that they, except Herod, of course, but they'd all think that they were saying great things about Jesus by making this comparison. And so today, if, if I were to ask, who do people say Jesus is? Well, you'd say, well, they say he's a, he's a great teacher, or he's a great example, or he's a moral leader, or he's an example of pure selfless love, or all these things. And, and all these things are meant to be great compliments to Christ, and they're great insults to Christ because they say too little about him. As all of these answers that they give say too little about Christ in calling him just a prophet. Well, Jesus obviously is not uh, content with that answer because then comes the second round in verse 15. He says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? Now that reflects an emphatic syntax in Greek. Uh, Greek, like, like Spanish, you don't need to say the uh, pronoun, the person. It's built into the verb, but he does say the pronoun. But you, who do you say that I am? So this comes right down to it, I mean, doesn't it? There's, there's no wiggle room there. If they wanted to be evasive, they could have just stopped with the first. Well, I don't think that they wanted to be evasive, but they can't now, because Jesus asked them, who do you say, not think, not feel, not even believe, but who do you say that I am. Uh, I'm going to return to this, but I just want to tell you, this is God's question to you, whoever you are. This is God's question to me. This is the question. I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that everything hinges on how we answer that question. If we answer that question according to truth, we go one way. If we answer that question in a lying, false, inadequate way, then we go another way. But everything hinges in what we make of Jesus, who we think Jesus is, what Jesus is to us, what we're willing to say that Jesus is. So he asked them, who do you, you, who do you say 
What a remarkable thing, by the way, isn't it, to have God incarnate asking you what you say about something? How did that have to feel? You're the teacher. We're the mathetai. We're the students. We're the pupils. You're asking us what we say? Why does it matter what we say? Well, as a matter of fact, to them, it matters eternity what they say. To them, everything matters on what they say, what they believe about Jesus, what they're willing to say about Jesus. Everything matters to them. Jesus is clearly not asking this for information. He's not asking because he doesn't know. He doesn't need to hear their opinions. He's asking them for their benefit. He's asking for their benefit. So now let's focus on the pivotal confession, Roman numeral 2, verse 16, the pivotal confession. And in answer, Simon Peter said, You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, first let's look at the words then. There's a chain of emphatic statements in this section. Did you notice verse 15? But you, who do you say that I am? Verse 15. Verse 16, Peter says, you, you are the Christ. Verse 18, Jesus says, and I... I also say that you, you are Peter. So four times I see here there's emphasis. Who do you, you say that I am? You, you are the Christ. I, I also say to you that you, you are Petros. Very emphatic and all about what people say. What do you say I am? You, you are the Christ because you, you have said this. So the, the emphatic words teach us at least two truths. On Jesus' lips, the individuals are emphasized. He's saying, in effect, okay, you've told me what men think, what men say, pardon me, what men say, you've told me, but now I'm asking you, you, what do you say that I am? Brush them all aside, tell me with your mouth what's in your heart about me, whatever others say. And Peter said, then to Peter, he says, Peter, you said who I am, now let me say who you are. They, they emphatically emphasize the people he's talking to on Jesus' lips. On Peter's lips, his words emphasize that Christ alone is what he says. Christ is not one of many. Christ is not the best of many. Christ is the only one in this category. There is a the, the, the. I'm looking right at the Greek text. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. One, two, three, four definite articles. And that has the, the effect of bringing this down to only one person. There's only one person in this category. Not one of many, not even one of few. The only one. You and you alone are the Christ the Son of the God, the Living One. That's the words. Now let's talk about the thoughts that these words express. And let's talk about Peter's conviction. And notice that Peter does not, he he gives no wiggle room at all. He does not say, I think. I think you're the Christ. I feel you're the Christ. He doesn't say, looks like you're the Christ. Seems to me you're the Christ. Could be you're the Christ. I hear that you're the Christ. He doesn't say any of those things. I was so frustrated when I read a scholar years ago writing about Christ, and he said, scholars say, early Christians say, the early Christian community believed, and that this was someone I knew semi-personally, and I was thinking, but what do you think? What do you say? Where's your heart? Well, Peter leaves no doubt here. He simply says in his own person, he says, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So uh, this is a settled statement of his own personal conviction. This is Peter's here I stand, as Luther would later say about his stance. Here I stand. So blow a little more thought into that. When Peter says you are the Christ, he's saying whatever men say, here's what I say. You are the Christ. When he says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, whatever my religious leaders say, And so many today, even though they hear the the truth of the gospel and see the truth of the gospel, don't want to leave their religious tradition because it's so comfortable to them. Peter was in a religious tradition, literally from his mother's breast. This was his religious life. This was his community. This was everything to him. And the leaders of his community had turned against Jesus. The leaders of his community were condemning Jesus. The leaders of his community certainly would not share what he's about to say about Jesus. But whatever they say, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, what we've seen Jesus emphasizing that it's that generation that took that stance. So when Peter says this, Peter is saying, whatever my generation says... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see the power of his statement now? He's aware of all this. But this is his unqualified, absolute statement of settled conviction. You are the Christ. And I just want to tell you, that's the only way to confess Christ. And that's the same way you and I must confess Christ. Every day. And we must never lose track of that. Whatever my family says, whatever the religion I was brought up in says, whatever the people at my office or at my college say, whatever my circle of friends say, whatever the people whose opinions matter so much to me say, whatever my entire generation says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the only way to confess Him. And that's the way that Peter confesses Him. As the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's convictions. Let's look at those piece by piece. What does he say about Jesus? Well, he says he's the Son of God. Let's start that. Peter is in some very good company when he says Jesus is the Son of God. Who else has said that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, God. So he's in pretty good company, wouldn't you say there? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, do you remember? When Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water, having been immersed, but I already said baptized. And here he hears God's God's voice saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So when uh, Peter says Jesus is the Son of God, he agrees with God that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the next chapter, who challenged Jesus' sonship? Satan, if you were the Son of God. Make these rocks, loaves of bread, and so forth. If you were the Son of God. If you were the Son of God, he says. God the Father says he is. Satan challenges it. However, I guess word didn't get out or something because demons confessed it. We see in chapter 8, verse 29, they cried out, what do you have to do with us, you you son of God? What do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? The father says it. Satan challenges it. Demons confess it. And men also said it in chapter 14. Those in the boat when Jesus 
entered the boat. They worshipped him, saying, you are truly God's son. Now, there's no definite article there, but you you couldn't really make a big deal about that. They don't say the son of the God, but in Greek grammar, that's not a big, big deal. They say you're God's son. And now Peter confesses that Jesus is God's son, as the Father had said. Secondly, he says Jesus is the son of the living God. Well, in contrast to what? Remember where they were. In contrast to Pan. In contrast to to uh, Caesar, Pan, who never existed in the first place, Caesar, who died. God is the living God. All idols are just idols, but Jesus is the Son of the living God, and so today we should as well reflect on that fact, that all of the gods of our age are, are, are dead idols. All these thoughts, I've tried to point this out to you again and again, that all these things people say about life and death and eternity and meaning and value and stuff, it's all just blah, blah, blah. It's all just noise. Because they're just popping off the top of their heads. It's got no authority. It's got no bite. It doesn't take into consideration all the facts. Why not? Because we can't. Not a one of us knows all the facts about anything. That's just the simple bottom line truth. Not a one of us knows the facts about anything. All of the gods of our age are dead gods. They're all dead gods. They're not gods at all. But Jesus is the son of the living God, Peter confesses. The true God, the only God, the God who is eternal, who has no beginning, who has no end. The heavens will grow old, but his years remain the same, as Scripture says. He's the son of that God. But now we come, I think, to the heart of it. He is the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why I saved it for last. Now, what's the big deal about him saying that Jesus is the Christ? You say, the gospel started with that. Yes, that's right. That's the beginning. The book of the genealogy of the book. I do get excited sometimes more than my mouth can handle. Let me slow down a bit. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Son of David, son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. First verse of the gospel calls him Christ. And then he's called Christ a couple of times again in the genealogy. And he's referred to as Christ a couple of times again in Matthew's narrative. But you know what has never happened heretofore? Nobody has confessed him as the Christ. Not one person has yet called him the Christ. It may seem surprising to you because you think of him this way, but this is the first time that an individual comes right out and says these words, and that's why it's central. And here's another just little interesting factoid. Mark and Luke also write on this incident, and their wording is, is different. They record, they record different parts of it, but there's one part that you see in all three in Peter's confession, and what's that? He says he's the Christ. Because that's the central new thing that someone has finally come out and said. You read the gospel and you think, well, it's all over the place. Yeah, true enough. But nobody said it up to this point. So why is that such a huge thing? Well, for one thing, and they're thinking about the Messiah, Jews had not necessarily put together the thought of Son of God and Messiah. They did not necessarily think that the Messiah would actually be himself the Son of God. So Peter joins these two truths, and that's very, very important. He's not just a man. He's not just a descendant of David or of Levi who performs some of these messianic works. He's not just even a great man. He's the Son of God. He is both human and he's divine. He's as much God as he is man, and he's as much man as he is God in one person. This is a, a remarkable confession 
that Peter's confessing here. That he is fully human and fully divine. That he is God the Son. Because to be the Son of God is, is to be God. You say, but there's other sons of God. We're children of God. Yes, we're adopted children of God. We weren't children of God. We were enemies of God. And we've all got birthdays. So what does it say that we have birthdays? There was a time when we were not. That's not true of God. We're sons and daughters of God at best in a qualified sense. Jesus is son of God in an unqualified sense. He shares the nature of God. He has no beginning or end. He is as much God as God the Father or God the Holy Spirit is God. This is a unique sonship. And Peter sees this in one person. This one person is Son of God, and He's Christ. Now, what is it to say He's Christ? Well, it's everything to the words that are about to come. Uh, remind me now, is, is Christ Jesus' last name? If you were to look Him up in the, Jeru- the Nazareth phone book, would you look under C, or in Greek, under key for Christ? Is that His last name? No, it's His title. Jesus is His name. Christ is His title. Like, pastor is my title, Dan's my name. So, Jesus Christ is to say Jesus the Messiah. Same word. Christ is the Greek way of saying it. Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying it. Both words mean anointed. Anointing with oil is how certain people entered certain offices. You see prophets being anointed. You see priests being anointed. And you see, can't remember the third? That's right. Kings being anointed. So the Messiah would be the one person who would combine in himself all three offices. There was no person who was a prophet, a priest, and a king. There was a king who was a prophet. But there's no prophet, priest, and king in Israel until Messiah. And as prophet, he would speak the very word of God. As priest, he would make full and final atonement for the sins of the people of God. And as king, he would subdue all enemies and bring in the kingdom of God. This one person would do all those things. And that's what Peter is saying Jesus is. I don't say that he necessarily could have explained all the implications of all those words, but he said it in kernel. He had the right address. Do you understand what I'm saying? He identified the right house. In that house is the truth about Jesus. And that house is that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. We're going to be learning about what those words mean for all eternity. So I say nothing demeaning about Peter. Put together Jesus' divinity and Messiahship and you've got the truth. And Jesus, uh, Peter, pardon me, Peter confessed this massive, pivotal truth. This massive truth about Jesus. He was the Christ. He was the son of the living God. That brings us to the programmatic pronouncement in verses 17 and 18. Roman numeral three. The programmatic pronouncement. What do I mean by programmatic? I mean, here's where Jesus says what he's going to do. Here's where he announces the agenda. This is the program. This is, this is the truth, and this is what I'm going to do on the basis of what you just said. So first then, the programmatic pronouncement as to Peter. There's a lot of P's there. The programmatic pronouncement as to Peter, letter A, verse 17. And in answer, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather my Father who is in the heavens. Kind of interesting. Bar-Jonah is the Aramaic way of saying son of Jonah. So uh, Peter says, you are the son of God, and Jesus says, you are the son of Jonah. 
in his humanity, and yet in his humanity he has said something of eternal truth. So first let's look at this blessing. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Peter gets his own beatitude. How cool is that? He gets a beatitude just for him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And, and I remind you, what, what is a beatitude? Is it a, a, a reward? You've been so good, you've earned this blessing. You've done such a great job, you've earned this blessing. No, that's not what a beatitude is. A beatitude is saying that what you've done shows that you're blessed. What you are or what you've done shows that you're blessed. And the, the, the reason that I know that you're blessed is because you said this. You saying this shows me how blessed you are, he's saying. It's, it's a pronouncement, not a prize. He's not saying right answer so you get a reward. He's saying right answer, and that's because God blessed you. You give the, you're giving the right answer because you're blessed. And that, your blessedness is shown in the fact that you're saying something that you didn't figure out by yourself, by your own flesh and blood, that people did not work out by themselves, that you wouldn't have worked out apart from the gracious work of God. So I see that you are blessed, Jesus says. Now let's talk about this revelation. Broadly, there are two kinds of revelation. Broadly, there are two kinds of revelation. There is what I'm going to call an objective revelation of something that I didn't know and God shows to me as new information. And then there's subjective information where I know this truth, but God opens me up inside to see what it means. God opens my eyes to see significance of facts that I've already had in front of me. There's two kinds of revelation. And this is that second kind of revelation, that God has so worked in Peter's heart that he sees the truth of facts that he's already had in evidence. He's, he's already seen all these things Jesus has done and said. He's already heard the scriptures that speak of him. And God has so worked in his heart that what the religious leaders don't see, though they've seen the same things. Don't forget that. They've seen the same things. These miracles are not little charismatic miracles only done in special rooms where everybody's turned his phone off. And, and nobody can see any proof of it. And you just, uh, it's a shame you weren't there, boy, oh boy. But you better come to all the meetings you can in the future. Maybe you'll catch one of these things. It's not like that. It's in broad daylight by a lakeside. It's in somebody's house. It's in front of everybody. They all knew it, but they didn't see it. They didn't see what Peter now sees. And he sees it, Jesus says, because God revealed it to him. He, he'd spoken about this back in chapter 11. This is worth looking at. Look at chapter 11. And verse 25, this is the same thing he's talking about there. Chapter 11, verse 25. All these cities had re rejected the preaching of Christ, and Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Well, these things were in evidence before all of them the wise, the intelligent, and the infants, who he's calling infants. But God only worked to reveal the truth in the hearts of the elect, of the infants of whom Jesus speaks. Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Or as he says to Nicodemus, what does he say? Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. It's a work of the Spirit of God in the heart. And that is what has gone on in Peter's heart. He sees these truths. He sees, shall I say, he sees the truth within the facts. Because God has worked in his heart to reveal this. And so, this is what happens when anyone truly confesses these truths. So, 
As to Peter, the revelation is the, uh, what I'm calling the subjective revelation of the truth of the facts that he has. Now, second, letter B, a programmatic pronouncement as to Jesus' plans, verse 18a. And you've heard, probably many of you, have heard about the word play. You've got to kind of imagine behind the English text. I just kind of put it into the English text to make it easier to see in my translation. And I, I also say to you that you are Petros. That's, G, that's Peter's name in Greek, Petros. I say that you, you are Petros, rock, and on this Petra, bedrock, I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. So, what did he say? Let's first ask. What did he say? Did you know nobody was called Peter? That was not a name. There, there just wasn't a name before Peter got that name. It was not a name. Simon was. Simon was a very common name. But Peter was not a name. So really, it's, it's, it's probably a nickname and not a name. Like we call somebody Rocky or Rock. Or I suppose The Rock. But anyway, it was, it was a nickname rather than a proper name. And The Rock's name isn't The Rock. His name is Dwayne. But Peter was called uh, Petros. He was called Rock. You can read about when he was given that name in John chapter 1. So this is a nickname, and Jesus does a word play on the nickname that he had among uh, Jesus' uh, apostles. You are Petros, and I will build my church on this Petra. Well, what's Petra? Obviously, it's related to Petros. The difference is a Petros is a rock, and normally it's a rock you can hold in your hand. It's a rock you can put in a sling. It's a rock you can throw. Petra is bedrock. It's a massive structure of rock. You can see it in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus uses the word Petra at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you know where I'm going? The wise man hears his words is like a man who, and does them is like a man who builds his house on what? Petra. Bedrock on a massive slab of rock. It's big enough that you can build a house on it. You can't take it in your hand and put it in the sling. You build a house on it. Now, there's exceptions to this, but that's the general difference between these two words. So he says, you're a rock, and on this bedrock I will build my church. Well, that's what he says. You say, thanks, and I'll just close in prayer. But no, we, we don't know what he meant. <laughs> we know what he said. Let's talk about what he meant. What is he saying when he, calls, when he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church? Well, let's consider a few possibilities. Was, did he mean that Peter was the Pope or that he was the rock on which he would build the church? This is where the Roman Catholic Church goes, right? That Peter's the first Pope. And this is the proof about papal authority. The Pope has the keys to the kingdom and he binds and looses. And that's what, exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's going to build his church on the rock that is Peter. Is that what Jesus is saying? And I, my answer to that question would be no, just like that. No. I mean, no. Nobody would think that reading the context. What's the context? Well, we just read a few verses before when Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the disciples say, oh, bread, we didn't bring any bread. What does Jesus call them, including Peter? You have little faith. That's the context before. What's the immediate context after? What happens immediately after this incident? He has this, what we're studying, looking at today, and then he says, oh, I'm going to go die in Jerusalem. And what does Peter do? Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Rebukes Jesus. 
This is never going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Pope. Does he say that? No, he says, no, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Right before that, he's he of little faith. Right after that, he's Satan. So is this structure of the church going to rest on this man, Peter? Is, is he a good bedrock for, a, for a, an ages-long uh, structure that Jesus is going to build? No, it's, it's not about Peter the person at all. That's, that's not what this is about. And besides, just grammatically, if Jesus had meant that, then he shouldn't have said, you are Petros, and on this Petra I'm going to build my church. What should he have said? He should have said, you are Petros, and on you I will build my church. Or he should have said, you are Petros, and on you, like on a rock, I will build my church. He could have said either of those things. He says neither of those things. And just add in the fact that in the rest of the New Testament, Peter has never made the foundation of the church. He's never the, the, the rock on which the church rests. Never, never, never. Something else is. It's not Peter. So no, it's not Peter as the Pope. A second and better idea, is the rock Christ, or is it the apostles as confessing Christ who are the rock, but just the apostles? That is a better answer because there are verses that call Christ the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Peter 2, they both called Christ the rock. And as to the apostles, Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So that could go with this idea. However, the same problem. He doesn't say, upon you, plural, will I build this church. And he doesn't say, upon myself, I will build this church, in so many words. He doesn't just say that. That would have gone better if that had been his meaning. He's saying something else. So what is it that he's saying? Well, there's only one more answer, so you figure that has to be it. Unless I'm just going to say I have no idea and then close in prayer. But that really isn't my plan. So does it mean that the truth of his divine messiahship is the church's foundation and its confession defines the church? Does it mean that the truth of his divine messiahship is the church's foundation and its confession, that is confessing that truth, defines the church? To that, I would say yes. And, and what would I say shows that that's the case? Well, what did I ask you to notice earlier? What stress in this section did I ask you to notice? Say, say, say. What do men say that I am? Who do, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says. So this rock is this statement of who he is. In short, it's this statement that Peter just made. That's the background. You know the expression we have, boy, you said a mouthful? Boy, Peter said a mountainful. That's what we got here. Boy, Peter said a mountainful. Out of that, Petros came a Petra of a truth. You follow me? So what, he, what Petros said was a Petra. He's not a Petra, but boy, what he said is, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. That's what defines the church. Not what people think or feel, but what people confess. And that's the definition of the church. So let me make that clear if it's not already. The church rests on that truth, which is to say it rests on Christ, because that's how we know Christ. We know him by the statements of truth. And that truth describes a person. But the way we contact that person is not that we feel him. That's not how faith doesn't come by hearing, well, faith doesn't come by feeling and feeling by a feeling of Christ. That's not what Scripture says, right? 
What does faith come by? Here, what, what does faith come by? Hearing, and what is hearing? The word of Christ. And what's the word of Christ? The preaching of who Christ is. And we believe that or we reject it. And if we believe it and confess it, then we are in that church. It is defined as people who make the same confession that Peter made. It rests on the truth that they confess, and they self-identify by that confession. Do you follow me? So a Christian is defined as somebody who confesses this truth in genuine faith. Someone who confesses the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so you see, the bedrock of the church is the preaching of Christ, which is to say that the bedrock foundation of the church is doctrine. So all these movements in recent decades to downplay doctrines, all these movements to say, well, doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It does. Praise God, doctrine divides. Doctrine divides the church from everything that's not the church. And if the church gives up doctrine, it gives up its definition and stops being the church. You're a group of people defined by your confession of Christ. You say, well, we don't want to confess Christ anymore. Fine, you go ahead, but you're not a church anymore. Don't keep calling yourself a church of Christ. A church of Christ is defined by the confession of the truth of Christ. Because the Word presents Christ. Because we meet Christ in the Gospel. We meet Christ and God in the Word of God. Not by sensing His presence, not by feeling Him, not by smelling Him, not by hearing sounds that seem like Him, or getting stirrings in our gut that are Him, but by His Word in which He presents Himself to us as truth that He means us, as we've looked at at length in the past, He means us to understand he means us to see is true, and He means us to embrace and rest our lives on. And so that's exactly what the case is here. God has revealed to Peter the truth of who Christ is, and He rests on it. He, confess, he confesses that that is His truth. And that goes well with a couple of other Scriptures I'll read to you, but do note them down. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, now listen, feel free to turn there, please. According to the grace of God, because I will be in it for a couple of minutes, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. Well, what is that foundation, Paul? But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, I perfectly understand somebody saying, but you said the foundation isn't Jesus Christ, personally. But what does Paul say? I laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Now, what is that to say? Is, is he saying he reached into heaven to the right hand of God and pulled Jesus out of heaven and put him there in Corinth and started building a church on him? Somebody say no, so I can move on. Thank you. Or is he saying he preached Jesus Christ? He preached the truth of Jesus Christ. That was the foundation, and the church was built on that foundation. Did he say that? Yes. Thank you. So... That's what it means to lay that foundation, to preach the truth of Christ so people can confess the truth of Christ. And that is what Ephesians 2.20 means, as any of you who were here years ago and we studied through heard. The foundation of the apostles and prophets is the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, laid by their preaching of Christ. That's what fits the, 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 the context in the context of Scripture. That the truth of Christ is the foundation, and the person of Christ is the personal cornerstone. Because the truth is not just brilliant ideas and philosophy that, that make a, 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 for a nice life. They describe a person. 
Otherwise, they're worthless. All these doctrines, lovely as they are, if there's no person behind them, I'm not interested. I didn't want philosophy. That's how I became a Christian. I wanted truth. I wanted reality. I wanted to know God. I found you can only do that in Jesus. Only do that in Jesus. And it's the preaching of Jesus that brings us to Jesus, the truth of Jesus. So what is this church that Jesus announces? Does he say, on this bedrock, I am building my church? Does he say, I have been building my church? What does he say? Huh? I will build. Is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? Future tense because the church doesn't exist yet. Because the church is not new Israel. It's not spiritual Israel. It's not fulfilled Israel. It's not realized Israel. It's not Israel 2.0. It's not new and approved Israel. It's not Israel. It's the church. It's a future work. When will he do this? After what he's about to talk about, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, on the day of Pentecost. That's when he'll start building his church. And the foundation will be just what Peter does on that day, the preaching of Christ. That will be the foundation of this new church. So, uh, the church is not a subject of Old Testament prophecy. So do we have here, isn't this nice? First, we had an example of what I called subjective revelation, where Peter saw the meaning of truths that he already had known. And now what do we have here? The beginning of objective revelation. This is something Peter did not know. He didn't know this. It wasn't in the Old Testament. Jesus is not recorded as having talked about it. It's new. He's going to build his church. So he's going to build it. He will create it. He will define it. He will rule it. He'll be the center of it. And he's the center of it today. And that's, that's where we need to uh, pause for this week. That the church is what Je- it's Jesus's to define. It's not ours to redefine. It's not our, we're not free to say, well, I, I think of the church as, well, that's interesting, I don't care. <laughs> and, and I think of the church as, that's interesting, you shouldn't care. It's not my church. It's not your church. I, I remember the first uh, funeral we had here, a gentleman I never met and never saw since, wanted to know whether he could smoke in the parking lot. I hadn't been asked that question before. And I, and I said so. <laughs> I'd just been here a little while, and he said, well, it's your church. Well, I knew what he meant, (laughs) but my instant inward thought was, no, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not. It's Jesus' church, and so we better be about what Jesus is about. And to the person who says, well, I don't need church, well, then you don't need Jesus, right? Because this is what Jesus says he's going to do. He says he's going to do it, and by saying, I don't need church, you're saying, I don't need what Jesus is doing, but boy, I believe in Jesus, No, I kind of think you don't. Because what he cares about, you don't care about. And you don't care about not caring about what he cares about. That does not sound like you believe in Jesus in any meaningful way. Oh, you have an idea of Jesus that you like, but not actual Jesus. Actual Jesus is going to give his life to build the church. As he tells Peter here, and it is defined by this confession. It's not defined by the state. It's not defined by feelings or experiences. It's not defined by ethnicity or by pragmatism, things that work, or by morality. People say, I like the Christian way because it's such a moral and happy way. Yeah, well, that's not the Christian way then. <laughs> if you think it's about morality, that's not the Christian way. What's the Christian way? It's about Christ. 
And my morality? That's about Christ. My ethics? That's about Christ. So I would say this is the big question to you and me. God turns to you, God turns to me, and asks now in this preaching, what do you say about Christ? What do you say Christ is? And that's the question. That's the central question. It's not what do you say about abortion. It's not what do you say about politics. It's not what do you say about evolution or creation. What do you say about values or trans or LGBTQ or, or really anything. It's, it's really what do you say about Christ. Because your answer to that question is going to determine your answer to all the other questions. Answer that question truthfully and you begin to tick off all those other questions in the light of that. Not do whatever you want, because that's what you'll do. Who do you say Christ is? Everything, your world, your eternity, depends on your answer to that question. Who do you say Christ is? If you confess Christ, then you need to become part of His church and His building program and walk with Him in that faith and after that confession. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your truth, and we thank you for the Word of God, and we, above all, thank you for Jesus Christ, because it's by your Word we know Jesus Christ. It's your Word that shines the glorious light on Christ, it leads us to Christ. It's by your Word we learn of Christ. Thank you for that Word. Pray for every saint here who rests on that foundation, that you will give the conviction and the assurance that goes with that firm and sure and only foundation. Pray for this church that you'll help us always to be in every way true to that foundation. And I pray for those who have that confession but are not living in light of that confession that you'll bring humbling and repentance and change. And I pray for those who have not yet made that confession, have not yet come to that faith, that the Spirit of God will do that work of revelation in their hearts that he did in Peter's heart that he did in my heart, that he did in the heart of every child of God here. I pray that he will open that man, that woman's eyes, to the truths he's heard about Jesus Christ, to see their value and their power and his need of them, and that he'll come running to Jesus as his Lord and his Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.